We're nearing the end of our sermon series, we can call it that, through the book of Hebrews. As we're coming into the last couple of weeks here, the author is giving a list of very specific uh, things we ought to go do as a result of what we've learned. It's kind of a helpful uh, summary to make sure that all the stuff we've heard is now being put into practice. So I want to go ahead and just read for you part of the last portion of the passage we're going to cover today. I'm just going to read for you uh, verse 15 and 16. You can just listen to this. Through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What I just read out loud there is the portion we're going to land on today. We're going to read verses 7 through 16 today. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be in 7 through 16. It's part of a larger section, 7 through 19. Today we're just going to get up through verse 16. And here's what I'd like to do. I'm just going to read through that and pray and go back. But this is what I'd like for you to keep in mind. All the things he's telling us to go do now are built on right thinking. We see this all throughout the entirety of the Bible. We're supposed to live rightly. And in order to live rightly, we have to think rightly. There are a couple of words that have been used throughout church history that kind of keep these in front of us. It's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy simply means right thinking or right believing. And orthopraxy is right living or right acting. That's what we want. Those two things are inextricably linked. Because in order to live rightly, you have to think rightly. And our text today offers an excellent example of how those two things play together. Because we're going to see things declared, go do this, instruction given, followed by things we need to keep in mind, that followed by more of what we ought to go and do. So my hope is by the time we get through this passage today, you can kind of see not only what we're supposed to go do, but why, why it is we're supposed to do that. So let's read 7 through 16. I'll pray, and then we'll go back through that text. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Father, this morning we pray that those things would be true, that we would be actively offering up those kinds of sacrifices. And in order for us to do that well, we need your help. Teach us, Lord. Help us to understand why that is so important. And how it is we should do it. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 7 then and see where we kicked off this morning. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So right out of the gate in this paragraph, the author tells us to remember our leaders. And which leaders are being spoken of here? This is local church leadership. I think this is talking about local pastors and elders. First, it identifies them as those who spoke to you the word of God. Those who have shared the gospel. Those who have modeled life and faith. 
And this is why I think we ought not see them just as traveling evangelists or perhaps unknown, albeit helpful authors, or in our day, uh, those who post podcasts and YouTube videos and other helpful things. I think this is referring to local church leadership because it tells us to consider the outcome of their way of life. The word outcome is the end, the result of the way of life. It's the kind of thing that needs to be observed. And the ongoing imitation necessary, I think, also helps us see that this isn't just somebody you heard of once or visited in town for a weekend and is gone, but the kind of people that you get to see in your midst that you may imitate their faith. Jesus once cursed the religious leaders of his day. Matthew chapter 23 gives us a real uh, ferocious summary of Jesus' cursing on the leadership of his day. He says this, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. Have you heard of that idiom used before, even in other uh, aspects, other contexts of life? Even non-Christians use this language. They practice but not preach. They preach but do not practice. That was the problem in Jesus' day. We had these old covenant members, these leadership uh, of the old covenant, who on the outside did all of those works and acts that the old covenant demanded, but inwardly they were like, rotting tombs full of corpses. They hated their own Messiah, and they rejected him. Jesus points to these guys. He goes, listen, do what they say, not what they do, because they don't love and honor God. That was a problem with which these Hebrews would be well acquainted. Now, after this point, after Jesus goes to the cross and dies, and is buried and is resurrected and ascends into heaven, He kicks off a new church age. And in this age, he assigns leadership to elders and deacons in local churches. And here he raises the standard of leadership. In other words, to say it this way, that Matthew 23 passage does not apply to the church today. Instead, we are given lists of qualifications for somebody before they're even allowed to be put into those positions. We'll see list of qualifications in places like Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 2 and 3. In fact, hopefully that's the kind of list that, that you had in your mind as we've been preparing to, to vote on an elder candidate here. That you, you get a chance to spend time with that elder candidate and you get a chance to, to open the word and go, okay, does this person line up with what it says here? If yes, then okay, we should move forward here. We need those who preach and practice what they preach, that their faith would be imitable. Now, this week and next, the passage we're going to cover today and the passage that I plan, Lord willing, to cover next week are going to kind of be two parts to a bit about church leadership in a church. So some of the questions that might come up about church leadership we're going to deal with today coming from this text. And next week, we're going to talk about another one, the submit to, the obey your leaders. It's the same leaders being talked about there. We're going to look at both of those together. So if you wanted a little bit of a fuller orb picture of how we should see church leadership, this week and next week, I hope, Lord willing, will be a great help for you in that. It is the responsibility for the members of a local church to hold their leaders accountable to the standards of the New Testament. I've had people before in the Mormon faith, we're surrounded by Mormons here, will point back to, to those in the Old Testament, prophets, Look at the Old Testament leaders. Look at David literally committed adultery, had a man murdered, and he's still a prophet. Moses murdered a man. He's a prophet. We look, look, look back and see a whole host of prophets in the Old Testament did all kinds of sinful things. You see, therefore, it's okay for New Testament leadership in a church. In our day, prophets today can, can do that same kind of stuff. Wrong. The bar has been raised. To put it simply, many Old Testament prophets would not pass muster for New Testament church leadership. Jesus raised the standard. And why? Because back then, those prophets, the singular guy in town who had the Spirit of God, spoke to the local region that they were preaching to. Usually it was Jerusalem itself, maybe Judah in the south, maybe Israel in the north. 
That's what they'd be a prophet to. Jonah, Nineveh, they were prophets to a very specific location. In our day, the people of the New Testament have been sent around the world. The gospel goes with us to every corner of this planet. And we go with people who all have the Spirit of God with us. We have been given a heightened standard. The Old Testament, for example, we could have prophets then who had multiple wives, like David, like Solomon. But in the New Testament, it says that an elder of the church must be the husband of one wife. This is very critical to see this. Otherwise, we might fall into the error, like many in the LDS church have, to think like, ah, if we see it in the Old Testament, it's approved for the new. Brothers and sisters, that's just not true. I've been thinking a lot about our church as I've been preparing to preach on Hebrews 13. These texts specifically talks a bunch about church leadership. And I hope to be introspective enough that, I'm, that I would be able to look at a text like this and go, Lord, let me, let the leaders at this church align to what this says rather than us see church leaders, okay, let me tell you how we do it, and then foist that on the text. So judge this, brothers and sisters. Take a look at this text. Take a look at what we're going to see this week and next and ensure that the leadership of your church accommodates this text rather than the other way around. Now, I think that especially due to texts like this that tell us that the believers in in a a congregation, those who are looking to their local leaders, ought to imitate the way of life of those leaders, consider the outcome of their lives. I think that the ideal, and what we see in the rest of the New Testament, is that there be a plurality of elders, plurality of pastors, those who teach the word in any given local church. I think the church is benefited by that. Those who teach, teach in smaller contexts, larger contexts, those who share the pulpit so that the more than one is always going to be delivering truth to other people. This is what it means to be an elder in the Bible, somebody who teaches the word of God. I think that it is helpful and wise and right and biblical for a church to have a variety of elders. And I think that those elders should be even a variety of ages. This is actually very timely because we're getting ready to vote on a young pastor candidate tonight. Biblically, we see both young and older pastors serving together in New Testament churches. And it seems helpful to me because we can look at especially the older of the pastors and watch the outcome of their way of life as we also watch younger pastors who are growing into being able to watch the outcome of their way of life. In other words, when you have a variety, those who are older in the faith, that you can see the product of the training of their children through the days. It's a wonderful gift. And when you have pastors who are learning even at a young age to invest into 50 years of experience, that by the time that they're in their 60s and 70s, they look back and go, I've been pastoring for 30, 40 years. That's a wonderful gift on the church. But it is essential to have local church pastors that you can be in contact with. So here's a very clear teaching I think we can take from this. If you are to imitate the faith that is to be observed in the pastors in your, that you are under their care, then you have to be able to observe their life in order to do that. In other words, a pastor has to be engaged and involved with the people at his church. If the pastor were to come up, if I were to come up here and preach a sermon and then back out that door and disappear for the week and then come back up here and do that time in and time out and never share the pulpit, never engage with any others and never spend and invest in time with others in the church, that'd be a major problem. You'd have no way of knowing whether or not I'm living according to these kinds of expectations. You ought to see the life in order to be able to imitate it. And yes, this is a weighty charge and one that makes me a little uncomfortable to preach on. Because James 3.1 says that those who endeavor to preach and teach will be judged with a greater strictness. But I want to approach this text the same as I would any other, even if it's going to be pointed at me. I pray, as the elders of this church pray, that we'd be able to lead wisely and rightly. We had an elder meeting this last week. We prayed yet again. We do every time that we gather together. Lord, help us remain faithful before our people. Help us to see what you want, not just what we want. Help us to build you up, not ourselves or even our congregation. Help us to make much of you. This is the way we're supposed to operate. And this does mean, if you can probably kind of sniff this out a little bit, 
it's far more challenging for big churches to do this well than smaller churches. This is a great benefit for smaller churches. You get to know way more people. You get to spend more time. You get to just text the people at your church. Just one blast text to the four other families. Tell them what the the times have changed. They're going to move to a new location tomorrow. Or don't forget to bring the, the Doritos and Ranch dressing to whatever party you're doing. There was a time we could do that all the time. Our church started with literally just me and my wife and our two kids. It wasn't a church yet, but that's how we began, just us in a room and slowly got to meet one more couple and then two and then three and it slowly grew and there was a time it was much easier for everybody to be in immediate contact. And as our church has grown, which is still a relatively small church, it's getting more and more challenging. It's difficult for larger churches to do this and it's something to be aware of and And those who are at bigger churches have to make a much greater intentional move to make sure this is happening, that you can imitate the way of life, the faithfulness of the pastors who are there. It's far more difficult to be done in that context. I think it can be done, but it's very challenging to do so. But before we think that this passage is too much about the person of your local pastor, the personalities involved, before we go there, Look what it says next. If you can put the verses up here, that'd be helpful. Go go to verse 8 and 9. The next slide there would be helpful. Look at this with me. This is the very next verse. After remember your leaders and imitate them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I feel like I have to say that because I say it that way because this verse is so beautiful in what it proclaims. But it feels like it needs to be sung rather than just stated. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You know, in the Greek, it's cool. There's not even a verb in this sentence. We supply the verb in English, is. Because there isn't one. It's just, boom, eternal fact. Forever, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Jesus Christ yesterday and today, same beautiful. The words of commentator Alexander Nairn, he says it this way, this is a battle cry rather than a creed, something to be celebrated. Jesus is the same and always has been. For I, the Lord, do not change, says in Malachi 3.6. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's Numbers 23.19. This is the nature of our God. And Jesus being true divinity is immutable. It means unchanging. We ask our kids our catechism question we have in the Sanford Catechism. We spend time with the little ones and try to get them to learn these truths. I ask them, does God ever change? And the answer there to give is no. God is perfect and does not need to change. Amen. He's not Seeking to attain perfection. All perfection is held in the nature of God and God alone. Amen to this beautiful truth. But why does it say it here? You could take a truth like that and flip to any part of the Bible, just drop it in, and it would beautifully be something that should be celebrated there. But why did the author pause and make this statement after he says, remember your leaders, consider their outcome a way of life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I think at least two reasons. First, because your pastors will come and they will go. But Jesus will not. Chances are, 10 years from now, very few of you are in this church building. We live in a super transient area. Not only that, Even when we're trying hard to not let this happen, we've taken hold, oftentimes as American Christians, of kind of a consumerism. Maybe something about this church you don't like five years from now and you go find another one. Maybe you just move out of state. Maybe I pass away. Maybe I die. Or you do. Fact is, pastors come and go. Those local leaders who are speaking into your life, will be here or not. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no new Jesus. You're not going to move to some new area and be like, okay, what's the Jesus I worship here? No, 
Jesus, the same Jesus who's always been that, the Lord and Master and Savior of every church, true church in the history of the world, Jesus Christ is God unchanging. This is why the only trustworthy pastors that you will find work their tails off to not make much of you or of themselves, but of Jesus. And if you ever sniff out pastors making much of themselves or of you, run. Confront or run. Or confront, then run. Because it's not as your job to prop up the ministry of individual pastors, celebrity pastor types. And it is not their job to make much of you. So you walk out every Sunday, I feel wonderful. It's to make much of Jesus. So no matter where you go, no matter what happens to you, 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe, Lord willing, 50 years from now, you will know and love and honor and worship Jesus better then than now. That's the loyalty we need from believers to Jesus before anything else. And when we get this right, this will show you how you can have such a, a genuine, loving, felt respect for brothers and sisters who have disagreements with you on various things. Because if Jesus is the same, even if we don't get it all right, he is perfect. He fulfills all righteousness. There's nothing faulty or wrong in him and never has been or ever will be. The previous verse, which we passed over, I don't want to miss that word, outcome. To consider the outcome of their way of life. This very well may imply death of your pastor. Consider the outcome of the way of life. It's actually only used one other place in the Bible. Where in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that when you're suffering temptations, the Lord will provide a way out. Okay? It's an end. A terminus. I think it's possible that what's in mind here is the pastors will die. These leaders will likely be the first ones targeted during days of persecution. As these people have already experienced. And a pastor must be willing to lay his life down for his church, just as Jesus did. Be very wary of pastors who make decisions for the church that disproportionately benefit them. Look for those who will sacrifice for the body, sacrifice for the church, because death may be required someday. This is why no matter what church building we ever find, I will never, as long as I'm a church here, as long as the other elders are church, or, or elders of the church here, we will never permit a pastor parking spot next to the church building up front. And I'm not saying that as a judgment on every other church that has done it. Some, some congregations have just tried to demonstrate a good love for especially an older pastor and want to do that. But look, I can walk. I'm okay. Happy to park in the far back of the parking lot to serve church. You get what I, you get what I mean? Look for those who are eager to serve and to sacrifice for their church, willing to die. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect any less for a male suitor coming to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage, would you? Son, would you be willing to die for my daughter? Well, of course not. Get out of here. I think it's possible that's what outcome means. They may have to lead forward in that. Go to prison first. Suffer first. Die first. And they must be eager for that. I was asked once, do, do you ever conceal carry when you're preaching? I was like, no. Why? Because to die holding the Bible would be the best way to go. That's why. We need people who in our day have a tight grip on truth. Jesus is the same. Now, additionally, that truth provides the grounds for the following exhortation. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So remember Jesus. He never changes. Don't go after those crazy, strange, diverse, changing teachings. You see that? This author is well aware that some teachers have, in fact, bought into the lie that some truths if not all truths, have an expiration date, a shelf life. Oh, that teaching on gender was true for 1,900 years, but not today. What? No. 
We reject that lie as we are being taught here. Do not, do not, and look at the words, be led away. That's the same word as leader used there before. So it's, so it's not just you might conjure up some ideas in your mind and, hey, start coming up with your own thoughts. No, no, no. It's, it's actually deeper than that. Don't let somebody lead you away by diverse and strange teachings. We were just reminded Jesus does not change. Therefore, truth does not change. We do not equivocate on this. We do not say, do you obey Jesus or his word? No, we don't divide. Jesus is the word. We do not deviate, say, do you follow Jesus or truth? No, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is the way it goes for us. Truth does not change. False teaching comes from false teachers. And any teacher or leader who tries to introduce new doctrine ought to be rejected outright. The New Testament repeatedly warns believers of the danger of false teachers. If you were to read through the New Testament, you'll see this over and over. Every single New Testament author repeatedly warns against false teaching. This means that you and I need to be prepared. We need to be warned by this. You know, you need to know, just this last Thursday, uh, the pastors at this church uh, at our, at our uh, monthly elder meeting, we just officially finished a years-long kind of uh, uh, walkthrough of the 1689, a second London, London Baptist Confession of Faith. We just kind of, finally, we started this a long time ago and just kind of wanted to walk through. We were looking for a historical confession of faith that as pastors of the church, we could go, that's, that's one that can bind us to other Christians in history. The one that we would go, that would best identify who we are. So that if you uh, want to know where do the pastors of this church align, we're like 99.8%. We're in closer agreement, listen, closer agreement with the teachings of that historical confession than we are with each other. And that's a good thing. This isn't a requirement for membership, but this last week we said, let's just, now we've kind of walked through this together, we prayed through this together. I think we can say this best tells people what we believe. And the reason I think that's so valuable is because we are not innovators of doctrine. If you ever have somebody arrive and show, tell, show up to you and say, hey, I've got some new truth for you, go get out of here. There's no such thing as a new truth, only old truths. I remember one time I was at a coffee shop not very long ago out here in Utah, and I had my Bible open, as I often do. Parenthetical, go to coffee shops with your Bible open. Just watch what happens. I'm telling you, you'll talk to people all the time. It's awesome. I don't ever study alone here in the church, almost never, almost always out there with the Bible open. I have so many good conversations. One was this family. It was a, a, a husband and wife, and um, they saw I had a Bible open. and just started up a conversation. I was like, are you Christian? Yeah, I'm Christian. They were like, oh, that's cool. We both were celebrating that together. This family began to tell me all about the views that they had. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's, here's what I believe. And I said, well, are you a member of any church out here? Oh, no. Why not? They've all kicked us out. That's weird. Why? Like, oh, because we believe things they don't believe. Well, explain that. And I won't go into all the details. Crazy stuff. Like, like crazy. Listen, we accommodate a lot of weirdos here. You know who you are. I'm talking like you look normal. And I heard all these things. And I remember after this person said this, uh, I, I said, just to test this, do you know of any other Christian in the history of Christianity who agrees with you on that? Oh, no. God revealed it to us, distinct from everyone else. I mean, literally, the, I forget exactly the wording, but it was something like, we're the first ones that God has made this clear to. I was like, well, then it's a lie. It's not true. They were really surprised. They'd say that. That's not true. I'm not surprised. If you're, if you're bringing this new thing and trying to teach others at church, I'm not surprised that these shepherds at those church are keeping you away because maybe you're a wolf. If you're teaching false things, the Bible demands that we do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, and that's one of those things. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, look in history to see what people have shared throughout time. History is not authoritative to us. Tradition is not authoritative to us. But if you're the first person in the world to read that verse and see it that way, I'm not even going to say probably. You're wrong. You're wrong. There have been times I've prepared to preach on a sermon. I'm like, oh, man, 
That word's like this word. That might be this. And I search commentary, 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 commentary. Can't find it. And I just go, it's not making the cut. Because I don't ever want to deliver something new to you. Ever. And this is critical. Because we're commanded to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Hold fast to what is true. And it has always been timeless and true. We do not here want to stand alone in our beliefs. We don't want to consider ourselves the one true church. The mission church is the one true church. We want to link our arms in history with other brothers and sisters in faith. And that doesn't even mean we need 100% agreement. We can go, hey, we are beyond sufficiently in agreement to link up here. Yeah, we're, we're together. It's an awesome thing to be able to do. Truth does not need to be updated for the times. In fact, you probably know, don't you? That as the times become more and more ridiculous, you need a tighter grip on truth. Notice, I didn't say truth is more true than, I'm saying a tighter grip on it. It's a little like this. I carry my wallet with me everywhere that I go. And it always stays here in my back pocket, left side. But on occasion, when I go into a really busy crowd where everybody's kind of pressing upon you, I take it out of my back pocket and stick it in my front pocket to avoid the pickpocket, right? I don't care about my wallet and my credit cards, and I don't care about my ID more than, I just am more wary of the threat. Make sense? It's like that. We, in this day, need to be more tight with our grip around what is unshakably true. The stuff that's not a question. I'm not talking about the little debated stuff we go, ah, exactly when should we expect Jesus to come back? No, no, no. I'm talking about the bedrock truths of Christianity that you might not be able to say you're Christian if you don't hold to. And we have got to hold them with an iron grip. Just the other day, uh, Mara, our four-year-old at the dinner table, (laughs) I don't know what made it pop up into her mind. I think it was something during our Sunday school time here at church. She just all of a sudden bursts out, and she's just a spitfire, a ball of energy, if you know my little four-year-old. And she just all of a sudden goes, Dad, the Bible, all the stories, they're real. I was like, yeah, yeah, they're real. And I realized, I I read the Bible with my kids every night. This is one thing that's just stayed, no matter how busy the life's gotten, no matter how many kids we've added, uh, no matter what's been going down in different seasons, every night the kids, uh, kids end up on Daddy's lap, read the Bible, pray and sing, every night. It's a beautiful thing we get to do. And I've told her story after story after story after story after story. And somehow she'd not yet internalized, these are real. Not like fables. Not myths. It's not like Elsa and Anna in written form. No, no, this is real. And for some reason, for that little four-year-old mind, it just stuck. Like right then, she goes, oh, you mean real. I think we need to say that. As Christians, these stories are real. We need to remind one another so we don't forget this. Uh, We talk about Jonah. Yeah, he was a dude, and he actually was swallowed by some fish. Yeah, a serpent spoke. Yes, Jesus healed. Yes, he died, and he rose from the dead. And you can too, if you believe in him. I think it's so critical for us to hold to these things and to declare them because truth doesn't change. Here he's guarding us against diverse and strange teachings. And he actually gives us a little indication of the ones he has in mind. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So so what might be in mind here? This is another place I think that if you were a Hebrew and understood the Hebrew dietary restrictions, you might be more in tune to this. But the old covenant had dietary restrictions. These were ceremonial laws that the people were to follow to demonstrate the fact that they saw a distinction between clean and unclean. God gets to tell me what I put in my mouth. He gets to tell me what to eat and what not to eat. And these things are to demonstrate that I am an unclean person. I may not put unclean things into myself. I am to only put clean things into myself. That's kind of the way that it went down. But in the New Testament, after Jesus inaugurated the new covenant as distinct from the old, he repealed the dietary restrictions. And he did this for a significant reason. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees a vision. You might remember this if you've read through this passage. He sees a blanket lowered from heaven filled with unclean animals, the animals they weren't supposed to eat as Jews. And he heard the, heard the voice of God which says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. 
And he goes, no, no, far be it from me, Lord. I have never put any unclean animal into my mouth before. And the response is, do not call unclean what I have made clean. He has that vision three times to hammer that nice and deep. Later in that chapter, we'll see that there's something even more significant at play. Because while it certainly does apply to animals, it applies to what we can eat. He goes on to go, that clean, unclean distinction extends even to all of the creatures of the world, to include people. There's no longer the clean Jews and the unclean Greeks in the way they thought about it. Even the Greeks have been made holy by God because of the death of his son. We'll see that in a few minutes here too, later in this text. And so here he's arguing, instead of pursuing extra-biblical restrictions on things like food, we are to be strengthened by grace, which is one of those things that so beautifully rises to the top in our new covenant mind. But what do you think that many of the earliest false teachers tried to impose on the people? Exactly these Jewish old covenant things. Circumcision, just like the old covenant. Oh, still be Jesus lovers, just add circumcision. Whew. Oh, you can still be Jesus lovers, just add no bacon. No shellfish. But they did not benefit the people. The Pharisees didn't partake of any of those things, and they hated God with all their hearts. So he says, do not be led away by this kind of teaching. He knows this is going to come. He even says this to make it very clear. Uh, Paul writes this in other, two other places. We'll see a bunch of places. I'll show you two. Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink. 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The New Testament makes this clear for us. You and I need to know that there was, at that time, a real danger for people trying to return back to Jewish roots, Old Covenant stuff. And brothers and sisters, that is still a warning that we need to hear today. Christians do this stuff. I've known many Christians who, when they've sinned against the Lord, they've They've had a secret sin they've been harboring away and they fall to it again. And then and they, they wake up the following morning and with broken heart they go, oh goodness, here's what I need to do. Lots of good works. Clean up that mess in my life and then I can approach the throne again. Abstain from more bad stuff. Uh, prove that I can resist from that sin of lust maybe. Pornography. I fell, so here's what I need to do. Next two weeks, none of that. Then I can pray to the Lord and engage with him and confess with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I can engage again. No, no. Christians, have a, we have a tendency to go back to this kind of stuff. Stop. You need to be strengthened by grace, not by those acts. You need to know that there's a real danger for us to be led away today in this way. It's been happening for centuries. It'll continue to go on until Jesus returns. You need to find a church, and hopefully we can be one of those. We aspire to be this. A church where the pastors there are deeply committed to teaching you what is true. Deeply committed to that. This means that sometimes you'll hear sermons and go, yeah, socket to the world, pastors. And other times you'll go, hey, why'd you punch me? Because we must apply the teachings of the Bible. We must hold to what is true. You need to know that one of the greatest blessings that this church has is that the elder board is, is by no stretch of the imagination a group of yes men. You need to know this. Because you see me up here every Sunday. I preach most regularly. I'm the voice you get to hear most. most that you want to get to see up here. I know this. You need to know I've been outvoted multiple times by the other elders, on things that I, I wanted to go this way and I didn't get my way. Because we sit there with the Bible open. I'm not the king of our church, and neither are any of them. Jesus is king of our church, and his word is authoritative. He's the chief shepherd. You've got to find yourself a church like that, wherever you ever find yourself. He is the most authoritative. His vote trumps ours in every capacity. Before you let this think like this is just about, well, those, those pastors at our church, I want you to think about this. We've said this before. Our heart is to multiply churches. We want to see a thousand churches planted in Utah in the next 50 years. That's going to take a lot of pastors, a lot of elders and deacons. 
you may be called upon, brothers in Christ, to be a pastor, to be an elder, to go with the church, maybe, maybe in a teaching capacity like, like I do very often, maybe in one of the many other types of capacity, that's, that's teaching to be sure, but other things that need to be led in the church as well, where people can watch and imitate your faith, the outcome of your way of life. We're going to need a lot of elders, so you need to sort this out. You need to make your life one that others can model and become increasingly, uncompromisingly committed to truth. One other thing I want to just convey that I'm so grateful for, I, I praise the Lord for this all the time. We have a body life here that there are many believers who just love studying doctrine and theology and like doing that. And, and there are many people in this congregation who know far more than I do about particular categories of doctrine. They're the ones that I go to and go, hey, what you been reading about this? What would you, what'd you learn? Share, share the goods, man. Let me, let me, let me learn from that. So, some of you know who you are. If you go on like Signal or WhatsApp or whatever it is, they're little chat groups, and they're usually identified by the type of doctrine you're studying through. There's so much that's going on. I think that's awesome. And it prepares a kind of preservation mechanism against the church going a crazy and wonky, strange and diverse way. I kind of liken it to ranch hands uh, walking the fence kind of at the perimeter. And every once in a while, someone finds a post that's wiggly and go, oh, oh, got to pound this one deep. Make sure it's attached so that, so that when the error uh, seems to be coming, people don't fly into the wrong side, but they stay and remain truthful. They stay and remain in a good orthodoxy. We are greatly, greatly served in this. I don't ever want to forget it. I thank you, brothers and sisters, who have committed yourself to those things. It's a great service for the church. But look what he says next. Verses 10 through 13. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let's just consider what's going on here. He points again back to the old covenant. A day of temples or tent, tabernacle, kind of tent here. Priests, altars, sacrifices, blood sacrifices. And even references the day of atonement sacrifice, which when the priest would sacrifice uh, the atonement sacrifice, he'd spread the blood, the high priest would, and sprinkle the blood on the furnishings inside the most holy place of the tabernacle. And then the rest of the body of that animal would be burned outside of the camp. Now that was significant because that was distinct of that particular kind of sacrifice. All the other sacrifices that came before the altar, the priest was allowed to take home to his family and eat. That's how the priests would survive. They'd, they'd literally do sacrifices all day long. They'd bring the portions that they were permitted by God to take back to their home and they'd have those sacrifices. That's how they would eat. And that's what it's referencing here. But just because a person was a priest in the Old Covenant, just because someone had that kind of authority, that kind of responsibility in the Old Testament, that does not mean they have it in the New. And that is actually what's going on here. We today, believers, have an altar from which those Old Testament priests who serve the tent, that tabernacle, they have no right to eat of it. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have access to his altar. You don't have access to the benefits that come along with being a believer. 1 Corinthians 10, 18 said this, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. In the same way, in the new covenant today, you and I, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we bear the priesthood of all believers. We get to partake of that meal. We get to approach that altar in a similar way that they did in the Old Covenant. Jesus died for our sins. He was our final sacrifice and our ultimate priest. We not only get to partake of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, but also the benefits of his sacrifice. And even the Old Covenant people of God don't get that unless... They have repented of their sins and turned in faith to their one true Messiah. In other words, apart from Jesus, you have nothing. And with Jesus, you have everything. 
If you're not a believer today, and this old covenant, new covenant language sounds kind of new and kind of crazy to you, here's what you need to know. Of all people of all time, you're a sinner. God said so. And you can disagree or argue with him all you want. He says you're a sinner. And that means that you deserve death and judgment and penalty and hell for forever because of your sins. That's a big problem. But his great love for you is such that he sent his only son to live a perfect life. That by belief in him alone can you have eternal life that he earned. And the righteousness of Christ is transferred to you. And the sins that you performed are transferred to him. And he is punished for what you have done. That's how it works. And Jesus died. He was buried. And he rose again. He couldn't stay dead. And you and I, if we believe in him, have repented of our sins and turned in faith to him, can be raised to new life, eternal life someday as well. This is a good and glorious truth. But the benefits of being Christian don't stop just in our thinking about that singular day we were converted. And it's not only something that's relegated to the future. Someday we'll have these benefits. No. Today, this very day, we have Jesus seated at the right hand of God today, interceding on our behalf. We can now approach the throne with confidence. We can now approach the altar of God. In the Old Testament, the atonement sacrifice was taken outside, just as Jesus was taken outside. That's what it says here next. He was taken outside, just as that sacrifice was taken out there. But there's something else significant that's going on here. Because it tells us to go outside to where he is, outside the camp. The point here is leave your Judaism, leave your religious ritual, and come to Christ. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is kind of the main point of the whole section, the, the whole letter. The old covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's done. A new covenant now is what we have access to. This is the summary, essentially, of basically all of Hebrews, wrapping up here in chapter 13. And look what it says. If we head outside the camp, leave Jerusalem, leave that, that, that city, what do we get? The reproach that he endured. Come out and suffer as Jesus suffered. Come out and die as Jesus died. That's where we are to go. And what should we expect? Not a city here on earth, but one in the future. Look at, look at what it says in verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The first one's no material city. It's not like we need Jerusalem. We need a particular location, a, a place on earth, as though that is how we can be with the people of God, as though that is how we can have peace with him. That's not what we're looking for. We seek the city that is to come. Our city is not here. It is a spiritual city. This same idea is pointed back to at least twice more in Hebrews. Once in chapter 11, another time in chapter 12, very clearly. In verse 11, it's talking about Abraham and says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, Abraham knew his destination was not physical. So should we. Back in chapter 12, not too long ago, we read, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a spiritual language. Our current battle is a spiritual battle. We are not ultimately concerned about losing physical cities in this war. Victory is secured. And here's the promise given in Revelation chapter 21. This is in the, the portion of this final book of the Bible that tells us of all the, the kind of trials that Christians are going to have to face, and it concludes with final judgment, the point at which Jesus sits on the throne and he judges all of mankind for all the deeds they've ever done and vindicates perfect justice once and for all. And after that has happened, in chapter 21, it says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The spiritual language of this city, the descending bride of Christ, the church, believers who died throughout all ages, will come back to this earth. And that's what we're looking forward to. 
So this beautiful truth, how should we respond? The last two verses, which is what I started with this morning, verse 15 and 16. Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Just as the priest of the old covenant would approach the altar to offer sacrifices of blood to God, we as priests of the new covenant approach the altar to offer sacrifices of worship of him, the praise to God, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, the doing good and sharing what we have. And these are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. We see this again in Romans 12.1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not neglect to do good. It's not hard to find people who profess faith in Christ today, call themselves Christians, and say that works have no place in the life of believers. It's just not true. It's the sacrifices that we're to offer up daily, not for sin, but a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, holy and acceptable, giving of ourself and what we do. As I said in the beginning, you've got to think rightly in order to live rightly. We've got to get our thoughts on this right, that we can never Add works to what Jesus has done. We are to not go off after strange and diverse teachings. We are to be careful and selective in finding leaders who will teach us the word of God, churches, local churches and pastors. Let this be the charge we carry as we head out today. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you so much for being a God who speaks, who gives us that gift of love. I pray that we would receive it as such. We would understand these things enough that we can put them into practice, Lord. Help us to be the people who do good, do not neglect, share, share with one another, to do good with one another. That we would offer you sacrifices of praise, that we would sing in worship of you. We would proclaim your excellencies to those in our church and those in our families and even those who don't yet know you yet, Lord. Help us to do this until your son returns. Help us to seek a city that is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.